From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. One reason why Islamist ideology spread so quickly was because it was shared through the media. Extremist messages are being broadcast on pulpits, in schools, and over the airwaves. But in the Middle East, there's been a rise of broadcasters who are producing TV shows that offer a different message. Show ISIS is not Islam. They're not related in any way. And liberal clerics are also finding ways to connect. So when it comes to efforts to combat ISIS, you're going to see a lot of cooperation among groups that normally don't get along. And Islamic television preachers see themselves as having a very important role in this regard. So how important is this anti-extremist media, and are their messages having an impact? We explore the voices moderating the Arab airwaves next on America Abroad. First, this news. From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. I'm Madeline Brand. The war in Afghanistan has been going on for 17 years. It's the longest war the U.S. has ever fought, and there is no end in sight. There is, however, one victory the West can applaud. The media environment in Afghanistan is one of the most important gains since 2001 in that country. Uh, it's an extremely free and freewheeling media. There are numerous satellite channels that are really popular, numerous very credible print and other media outlets covering domestic and international politics. That's Johnny Walsh. I'm a senior expert on Afghanistan at the U.S. Institute for Peace and a former State Department official. He says the freewheeling media kind of happened organically with the advent of social media and the deregulation of TV channels across the Arab world. Voice of America and other U.S.-backed media broadcasts into Afghanistan. But Walsh says it's locally produced programs that people really listen to. I think messaging is virtually always more effective if locals are sincerely delivering it. And generally speaking, the U.S. will never be as good at being compelling, at, at being persuasive in any country outside its own, as the locals of that country themselves are. And so oftentimes the best U.S. messaging efforts are less about our delivering a message and more about simply providing a platform for people in that country to provide their own message. Oh. So I remember the State Department helped out with something called Burka Avenger, which is just a wonderful cartoon about a, a female superhero who among other things, preaches the value of education, but also embraces her Islamic identity. No one had to write that for anyone. They just needed help producing it, uh, or you know, being physically able to put it on the air. And there's a, there's a similar one now that USIP has tried to help with that incorporates the teachings of Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who is, uh, let's say, Pakistan's George Washington figure and applies them to current events, and these are very high-minded principles. Song Idol mein khush Ab stage par perform karengi Aria! Those have been great because no one outside had to create them. These are genuine, sincere, locally rooted concepts that just needed, <laughs> call it seed money, to get off the ground. But some of these new broadcasters have gotten too liberal for some rulers. You know, across the Arab world, to some extent in Pakistan. And there are numerous examples where governments in Egypt, in the UAE, you know, in, in putative U.S. partners have shut down 
either uh, messaging or pro-democracy programs over the years. It's always a delicate balance, and at least in normal times, those governments understand that part of the deal with having a relationship with the U.S. is that they're going to support anti-extremist, pro-democracy programs of different sorts, and they are often willing to accept a certain amount of it. It depends heavily on how hard the U.S. is willing to push or how high it's willing to elevate programs like these in the larger relationship and potentially to absorb some blowback from this or that regime in the interest of supporting something that's fundamentally right. Some of the most interesting anti-extremist programming produced in the Middle East has zero American involvement. We'll find out more about that later this hour and how satellite television presents an opportunity to allow moderate voices to be heard. Today on America Abroad, we'll hear stories throughout the Arab and Muslim world about how the media intersects with religion and politics. There's a vast media landscape in the Middle East, and radical Islamists have used it to spread their violent ideology. But in the past few years, new broadcasters are fighting back. Today on America Abroad, we're going to take a look at what that fight looks like. We'll hear about a new television show that lampoons ISIS, liberal religious clerics who are finding new ways to speak to people, and how some of these media personalities are finding ways around repressive regimes. Middle Eastern media is as varied and diverse as media anywhere else. In Saudi Arabia, though, the government exerts strict control. Just this month, journalist Jamal Khashoggi disappeared after entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. He had fled Saudi Arabia last year because of a crackdown on moderate voices there. He lost his job and was banned from Twitter after criticizing Donald Trump. Saudi Arabia isn't the only Middle Eastern country to heavily restrict media, according to Joseph Browdy. He's a Middle East specialist and author of the book Broadcasting Change, Arabic Media as a Catalyst for Liberalism. And he says some media in the Middle East is just state-sponsored. Within the borders of a monarchy or a republic, most of the, certainly all of the major media is either controlled or dominated indirectly by the ruler. And the ultimate goal of it is the same. It's to tell a story, one big story, in which the ruler is indispensable. So if it's a monarchy, the story is about a king who protects an ancient tradition and provides for his people. If it's a republic, then the story stars a president, a revolutionary, who breaks with tradition and brings social justice to the people. The problem is that both of these stories are severely challenged by evidence to the contrary. And that's an opening for the media workers, especially the liberals among them, to suggest tweaks to the basic storyline, like let's put more women in it, or let's show the role of the people in engaging the ruler's aspirations for social justice. And that is how you get improvements in authoritarian media over time. What personal costs do these workers propose these changes? Is it risky to try to change the narrative or adjust the narrative? It is, it is risky, um, but it is a game that um, conviction-driven employees of authoritarian media spend their lives playing. Uh, it's slow-moving. You have to navigate you know, your own desire to maintain a career and a livelihood on the one hand with your desire to press for change on the other. Sometimes there are casualties in that struggle. You, at, at the very least, you can lose your job and sometimes worse. 
but uh, it is a struggle that there are a critical mass of people who are willing to wage. But generally, the, the basic value proposition is that they are not being anti-establishment in the sense of subversion against the ruler. Instead, they're partnering with the ruler to challenge extremist strains in the society that are both a threat to the ruler and a threat to the overall progress of the country. And so where it works is where they're able to forge a partnership with the authorities in pursuing certain discrete goals. They can't do everything they want, uh, but they look for the common ground. Can you give me an example? The, the most striking example in the Arab world is Saudi Arabia, because there the monarchy to liberals is seen as their support base against the conservative and hardline strains in Saudi society. In other words, they're both struggling against uh, clerical domination of the culture and the public space. And so that would be an example where, where certain media feel that they are uh, allied with the establishment. And you see that to greater and lesser degrees in other Arab countries. But they can't actually question the Saudi leadership. That's correct. They cannot push against... They, these, these are not agents of democratic change. These are people who are pushing for uh, social reforms in an authoritarian framework. And the minute they start talking about representative government, they are on shakier ground. But many of them say, look, we don't want a democracy right now because if we got one, those hardline social forces that are opposed to us would likely win the elections. And so instead, we're going to spend a generation transforming the majority culture. And only then will we start pushing for democratic change. Tell us about the show Selfie. Selfie is a show that airs in the Gulf on a channel that enjoys uh, freedom to broadcast from the United Arab Emirates, and it is a Saudi-owned channel. And what the show does every season, every Ramadan, is to spoof a social trend that has caused problems. A new uh, sketch comedy show uh, called Selfie has won uh, both uh, praise and death threats after mocking the Islamic State group. So one year, uh, they were looking at ISIS, and they told the story of a kind of a hapless middle-aged father who journeys into ISIS land under the guise of a would-be fighter to rescue his son from their brainwashing of him and bring him home. And in, in the course of that, he has to pretend to be a jihadist. They want him to execute an infidel. And he goes from one to the next and says, well, this one is too bald. Or, uh, I don't like the look of this guy. His ears are too big. He does everything he can to, to, act, to not actually fight, uh, but be able to spend time with his son. And it has a tragic ending, but you're laughing along the way. But the fiery debate around the episode was caused by the concluding scene, in which El Qasidi's character is executed by his own father. The subtext of that is to show an impressionable audience that might be vulnerable to overtures from ISIS that it's not what it's cracked up to be. 
and it's actually a very ugly place. The emotional scene struck a chord with audiences who recognized the disintegration of the Arab family unit in the face of terrorism. That may be self-evident to many Westerners, but in the Middle East, where extremist messages are being broadcast on pulpits, in schools, and over the airwaves, that's not a foregone conclusion. And so it takes proactive programming, satire, biting social criticism, and so on, to instill a different message in certain sectors of the public. Who is writing these shows? There is a, if we're talking about Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, there is actually a, a long-standing scene of intellectual ferment among liberals who, against tough odds, strove to be actors, strove to be social critics, and they were always there. They were un in unusual places, like there was a college, of, a faculty of agriculture in Saudi Arabia that had a theater. It was one of the only places where you could study theater and put on plays. Uh, but over time, as a range of factors caused liberalism to become more expedient for the rulers to promote, uh, they gained more and more space to do their work and were ultimately catapulted to the very highest levels of c celebrity and notoriety. But then we have the case of Bassem Youssef. He was the Egyptian John Stewart. That's how he was described. John Stewart even appeared on his show. So, uh, John, I mean, uh, I mean, I know. I wish all the best for you. Uh, I mean, you're not, you have absolutely no no job. You know. That's actually interesting. You bring that up because uh, I heard there might be an opening for the type of humor that I do in this very studio. Seriously. <laughs> He was extremely popular, but then five years ago he was forced off the air and he had to flee because he was afraid of being arrested. So what does that say about the ability for these intellectuals to go against the state and even in a comedic setting, but to try to satirize modern society? You're right. He was, he was forced off the air. He fled Egypt. For a while he tried to do his show on NBC, a Saudi-owned channel with a, a seemingly liberal bent, uh, and that didn't work out either, and now he's here in the U.S. on an academic fellowship. Um, I think what his story shows is when you leave that value proposition of, I'm partnering with the authorities to challenge extremism in the society, and you start talking about challenging the authorities themselves, it's unsustainable within the borders of an autocratic country. But I guess, how, how much um, authenticity will you have if you can't criticize the ruling elite with, with the viewers? I mean, won't they see that you're just basically an arm of the corrupt leadership? That is definitely one of the trade-offs. Um, and so your popularity is inextricably linked to the popularity of the ruler. Uh, we do have some examples of autocrats who are popular right now with young people, but certainly there are those who are extremely unpopular. So that, that is the essential trade-off if you want to work within the territory of the autocracy. If, on the other hand, you go the route of the Rocky John Stewart and you start broadcasting from Germany, you risk another type of challenge to your authenticity, which is, hey, he's working for the German government. So it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, and people adjust according to their own comfort levels and preferences. 
So how can you measure whether or not all of this is working to create change, positive change? Doing so is especially difficult in environments where focus groups and uh, opinion surveys are less effective uh, because of concerns about expressing your own opinion. You can sometimes gain insight into a program's impact from the backlash it stirs over time. So, for example, there was a long-running comedy in Saudi Arabia called Tash Matash. And at the beginning, uh, it was very easy for them to get censored by the government or get death threats from extremists in the society. Over time, scripts that were once rejected by censors became acceptable, and extremists took greater and greater pushing in order to, pre to be provoked into threatening. So that's evidence, on the one hand, that government is becoming more accepting of gutsy shows, and on the other hand, that extremists are getting acculturated to challenges from liberals. That's Joseph Browdy, Middle East specialist and author of Broadcasting Change, Arabic Media as a Catalyst for Liberalism. Coming up after the break, ISIS, the TV show. My brothers in faith, my brothers in jihad, says one of the militants as he boards the bus. You are on the doorstep of paradise. Throw away life's pleasures. The men hand over their cell phones and they enter ISIS's caliphate. If you want to join the conversation, you can find us on Facebook or tweet us at America underscore abroad. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. This hour, fighting extremism on Middle East media. ISIS has become savvy in their recruitment efforts. From the aspirant caliphate in the emerging Islamic state of Iraq and al-Sham, a stream of violent, viral videos filmed and professionally edited. So how do you craft an equally potent counter-message? That's the goal of the program Black Crows, which shows potential recruits the reality of what it means to join ISIS. Rebecca Collard has more from Beirut. The opening scenes of Black Crows may be its most powerful. It shows an empty desk chair, an operating room with no surgeon, a football team, short one player, and a class of students with no teacher. Missing person flashes on the screen, followed by their name and occupation. The implication? They have gone to join the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, or Daesh, as it's often called in Arabic. Next, we see the recruits entering ISIS territory. A dozen or so men on an aging bus roll down a dirt road. Dead bodies hang from the trees. Soon, they reach the first ISIS checkpoint. The militants' ubiquitous black flag, sandbags, and well-armed militants. My brothers in faith, my brothers in jihad, says one of the militants as he boards the bus. You are on the doorstep of paradise. Throw away life's pleasures. The men hand over their cell phones and they enter ISIS's caliphate. Men chant, God is great, God is great. 
Black crows ran on the Saudi channel NBC during the Islamic month of Ramadan last year. 20 episodes attempting to show the darkness of life inside ISIS's territory. But we felt that as broadcasters, we should use the power of entertainment to show the ugly face of terrorism, to show uh, the atrocities and, uh, and uh, criminality and the abuses done by terrorist networks, and to take the initiative to use the power of entertainment that reaches millions of audiences uh, and to engage audiences with, with content that is compelling, that is not only showing the ugly face in, a, in, a, in an overwhelmingly blooded version, but rather use the power of fiction, of drama, to tell the story of the ugly face of terrorism. That was the idea behind Black Crows. Mazen Hayek is a spokesperson for NBC. He says Black Crows is unique in a number of ways. It was the first major series to depict life in ISIS's caliphate and went beyond showing the toll on victims. Added to it the focus on women in Daesh and how abuses were targeting uh, not only the innocent people that were subject to terrorist acts, but also the recruits themselves, women, children, and others. Several of the main characters in this show quickly come to regret their decision to join the group, but escape is not an option. In one scene, a new recruit played by Lebanese actor Joe Trad is forced to kill a group of nurses and doctors after the militants storm the hospital. Trad says the series had another message as well. We're trying to show what they did wrong for the reputation of Islam or the image of Islam. Trad's character turns out to be a sort of spy or double agent, actually working against the militants. The toll it takes on him in the show sends a message to potential recruits. This is not the Islamic paradise you were promised. Uh, show that Islam is not ISIS and ISIS is not Islam. They're not related in any way. But some Muslims saw it differently and accused black crows of disrespecting Islam. On his show, Syrian journalist Musa al-Omar took issue with the way his faith was represented. If you want to resist ISIS through media, that's your right, he says. But do not harm me or distort my religion. Don't distort my Islam. You are distorting Islam much more than ISIS. The show faced criticism also for its depiction of women. Some of the female recruits were seen to be on some sort of a jihad al nikat which would roughly translate to sex jihad, and implied the women had just joined ISIS to provide sexual services to fighters. Is there really any woman in the whole world willing to take three planes, then cross the borders into Raqqa or Mosul just for sex jihad? asked Omar on his show. What kind of lie is this? Do they think we're stupid? NBC says, though, Black Crows was one of the most popular series that Ramadan. The goal was to counter ISIS's slick propaganda that showed the caliphate as moral and mighty. Videos like this one went viral, depicting ISIS's battlefield strength. Others showed atrocities, beheadings and executions. But most of the videos were not about violence and war, but about the good life offered in the caliphate. Like this video posted in 2014, which shows fighters handing sweets and candy to joyful children on a playground. 
Others smile and lick ice cream cones. Islamic State, shouts one of the fighters. Will prevail, reply the children. Yeah, solidarity, camaraderie, doing things together, uh, the slow life, these kind of things, these kind of metaphors are always present in uh, ISIS videos. Donatella Delarata is an assistant professor at John Cabot University, Rome. She's also the author of an upcoming book, Shooting the Revolution, Visual Media and Warfare in Syria. And they uh, very like very often uh, features uh, interview with um, Europeans, uh, so European jihadists uh, who have gone to the Middle East uh, to live there. And one of the reason the reason they quote the most for moving to the so-called caliphate is because they felt that their their life was meaningless in Europe. There were no values, and you know, besides, you know. Capitalism, of course. Rata says ISIS videos offered ideas of community and belonging, something that anti-extremist media from governments and big broadcasters failed to do. They all lack these uh, ideas. They're not fresh. They're very institutional. It's kind of like uh, you don't have to do this. And in fact, you, you do exactly that. You know, I, I just think that this is not the right way to convince a wannabe terrorists not to join a jihadi group. In Black Crows, children's lives are portrayed as grim and violent. In one scene, a group of boys asks how they will get to heaven. By car, by boat, by plane, the children guess. Their leader, who is depicted as a pedophile, says no. They're going by something faster, he says with a smile, an explosive belt. It's pretty scary stuff, but is it successful in countering violent extremism? Because uh, I think we should ask ourselves in the first place, what do we mean by successful, you know? I mean, uh, do we mean that audience responded to it? I mean, uh, there is a big problem in Arab media, which is a lack of uh, reliable, independent media studies and uh, audience research. So, I mean, everything is pretty much anecdotal. Hayek agrees that it's difficult to know exactly what impact Black Crows had, but he says... Imagine this series having dissuaded or convinced just one person not to commit a, 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 a barbaric act a terrorist act, or having convinced a wife of a man to tell him, don't go, don't join them, don't, they, these are criminals, these are not heroes, that would have achieved its objectives. A few months ago, Netflix also picked up the Black Crow series, and now it's available with subtitles for foreign audiences. Even though ISIS seems to be nearing its defeat, it's unlikely to be the last jihadi group recruiting in the region and abroad. Hayek says it's the duty of broadcasters like NBC to combat radicalization. Maybe there should be a coalition of, uh, of entertainment uh, conglomerates around the world who work together on developing a hundred series like uh, Black Rose, a coalition of the willing who is, who is ready to, to fight the cause of counterterrorism and say enough is enough. For more now on how anti-extremist programming has been effective in parts of the Middle East, Rebecca Collard is with us now. Hi there. Hi, Madeline. So tell us more about this Black Crows show. 
Will they produce more episodes? Well, that's a really interesting question, actually, because originally um, this ran as a Ramadan series. So one of the most popular times uh, of the year for TV is during the uh, Islamic holy month of Ramadan. And after breaking the fast, it's it's traditional that, that families will sit down and watch TV together. So originally this ran um, actually uh, last Ramadan, uh, and it was supposed to be uh, ju- just for that period of time. Now, the first thing that's interesting about that is that in the end, it was only 20 episodes. and um, after after the controversy that I talked about in the piece, um, there was also the rumor that it was actually cut short, that um, it should have been more episodes. Usually these programs run uh, for the whole length uh, of the month uh, rather than in just 20 episodes. But also interesting is that just this year, uh, just a few months ago actually, uh, this, this same series, Black Crows, was released on Netflix with English subtitles. So I think that was an effort. Uh, you know, when I spoke to NBC, they said that what they wanted to do was to uh, make make this available to a wider audience, to more languages, to more areas. Uh, but as far as re- reproducing this show or more episodes of this show, that's that's not on the agenda. Well, another method of messaging is through mosques. How effective is that compared to TV programming? Well, you know, across the board, when I talk to experts, when I talk to uh, Shaleen, uh, and when I asked people even at NBC that produced Black Crows, I asked them, how effective is this? How effective is this programming? And it's very difficult to tell. You know, it's it's never like we have a list of people that would have gone to join ISIS if they hadn't seen it or, or who went despite having seen this sort of programming, whether it be something entertainment-focused like Black Crows or something like uh, El Sadisa, which, of course, is more about... Uh, Islamic preaching. So in all cases, it's really difficult to tell, um, you know, what is more effective. But um, I know as you as you heard in the piece, um, what uh, the representative from NBC said is it's effective as long as it stopped one person. So uh, as far as a bigger sense of of how how effective this was, it's really difficult to tell. And what are some other countries in the region that also have state run anti-extremist television shows? I looked around the region thinking that this would be a model that was copied by a lot of different countries, but there was really nothing that was um, kind of as big or as popular as El Sadisa. Uh, you know, in Egypt, uh, the government does control several Islamic TV shows, but they're not very popular. Um, in Turkey, there was really nothing comparable as well. So definitely most of these countries have some sort of channel um, that, that has some sort of Islamic content, but, uh, but nothing that compares to the one in Morocco. That's Rebecca Collard speaking to us from Beirut. Coming up, how some religious clerics in the Middle East are harnessing new media to fight conservative ideology. Today, for the vast majority of Muslims, ISIS is an extremist group uh, in the sense that its norms and practices are beyond the pale of what uh, most Muslims would agree their religion teaches. And Islamic television preachers see themselves as having a very important role in this regard uh, because they see their main role as teaching Muslims what Islam really means, uh, what it really entails. Just tuning in, you can catch the full episode and past programs by subscribing to America Abroad on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Fighting Extremism on Middle East Media on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're talking about how more liberal media in the Arab world can be a counterbalance to radical messaging. 
Some of the most well-known religious figures in the Middle East right now are Eldua El Gadud, or the New Preachers. Since the Arab Spring in 2011, they've become popular on TV in some Middle Eastern countries. Many people look to them for guidance on how to think about religion and politics. The New Preachers are advocating what they call a revolution of self, meaning people should have a strong inner sense of their religion that doesn't rely on rituals or rules. Yasmin Moll is a professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan, and she studied the rise of these new religious figures. I became interested in Islamic television preaching when I saw the growing popularity of very young preachers with um, no kind of traditional religious education with Muslim viewers in Egypt. And what I began to realize was that these preachers were very invested in changing what Islamic media sounds and looks like. So they they felt that traditional Islamic media was very boring, very conventional. No one wanted to listen to men in bushy beards yell about all the different ways Muslims are going to go to hell. But those who hesitate or those who refuse, they would have refused and disobeyed Allah and his messenger. That's the, that is God's complete justice. And Everyone they felt that what was needed was a new kind of Islamic media that spoke to youth in, in, in ways that they were familiar with from watching, uh, you know, reality shows or music videos or Hollywood entertainment. So I became interested in how these preachers were trying to reimagine what Islamic media sounds and, and looks like. One of the first major events where these new preachers began to show their influence was during the Egyptian Revolution in 2011. During the actual 18 days of the uprising against Mubarak, most people were not interested in watching Islamic television preachers. They were very interested in watching BBC, Al Jazeera, uh, CNN, and watching news coverage of the revolution. But immediately after Mubarak resigned, people began to look to Islamic television preachers to offer them kind of commentary or solutions to the many political problems and economic problems that Egypt was facing. So what was interesting to see was how the Islamic television preachers I was working with began to reimagine their role as kind of social critics or as people who would offer various kinds of solutions to the different problems facing Egypt in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. So Mu'izz Mas'ud is a very important Islamic media figure. He's a 30-something preacher who's currently pursuing a PhD at Cambridge University in the UK. And over the past years, Mas'ud has really been pushing the boundaries of what Islamic media or Islamic television preaching looks and sounds like. Right after the revolution, Mu'izz Mas'ud released an important program called Thawra uh, al-Nafs in Arabic, or a revolution within, a revolution of the self, where he called on Egyptians to, to become new kinds of people, people who would kind of live up to the promise of revolutionary Egypt in terms of democracy and coexistence and tolerance and, uh, and civil disagreement. 
And he did that through a religious idiom. For most Muslims, the solution to political and economic problems lies in a more correct understanding of what the Islamic tradition teaches and upholds. So when you tune into his YouTube channel, you're going to find him singing with a guitar with one of Egypt's uh, most famous revolutionary artists. And he's going to be singing a song against uh, dogmatic thinking, whether from religious people or uh, non-religious people. You're going to find him starring in a television drama series that also has a religious message to impart over 30 episodes. So those are the kinds of uh, new formats that him and other preachers like him are really innovating in their attempt to reach new audiences, to reach uh, young Muslims in ways that they will actually find compelling. But Moez is just one of many prominent figures in the Middle East right now, and they don't all share the same ideas. Precisely because the Islamic television sector is largely privately owned and privately funded, there exists a wide spectrum of theological and ideological orientations on Islamic television. Islamic television is not a monolith. There is a wide diversity of viewpoints and religious scholarship that is regularly aired. When we think about extremism, we also have to think about its opposite, which is moderation. And the idea of, of religious moderation has a very long history within the Muslim world, including in the pre-modern era. But what moderation means and what voices get labeled as extremist is, is not a stable thing. It's, it's constantly changing. But one thing is clear is that today, for the vast majority of Muslims, ISIS is an extremist group uh, in the sense that its norms and practices are beyond the pale of what uh, most Muslims would agree their religion teaches. And so when it comes to efforts to combat ISIS, you're going to see a lot of cooperation among groups that normally don't get along. And Islamic television preachers see themselves as having a very important role in this regard uh, because they see their main role as teaching Muslims what Islam really means, uh, what it really entails. But Mul says combating violent ideologies isn't always a huge priority for these preachers. She says that's because relatively few people are actually recruited to join ISIS. There's been a lot of panic lately about the recruitment success of ISIS among young Muslims. But if you look at the numbers, you realize this is really an unfounded panic. Even Tunisia, which has sent the most young people to ISIS, as of last year, it sent 6,000 people. Now, Tunisia's population is 12 million. And you can begin to to put the number of 6,000 in perspective. And that's the biggest, the biggest sort of uh, country that has sent young people to ISIS. And I think that the biggest counter narrative to groups like ISIS and their extremism actually comes from the reality that the vast majority of ISIS victims have been other Muslims. Uh, not just Shia Muslims, but actually Sunni Muslims. In the US, um, we tend to focus on ISIS attacks in, in Western countries, but ISIS has mostly been very active in Middle Eastern countries. In November last year, ISIS carried out one of the deadliest uh, terrorist attacks in Egyptian history, where it basically killed 300 people praying in a mosque in a town of only 700 people. So it wiped up half the population of, of, 
of this village. So the biggest victims of terrorism committed by Muslims are actually other Muslims. And so I think what we need is less religious counter-narratives because those are alive and well, and more of a treatment of the context that allow violent ideologies and theologies to flourish. And this would mean addressing structural problems like economic inequality, political corruption, as well as the human devastation wrought by Western military intervention in the region. And I think, you know, us as American citizens, we have an opportunity to hold our government accountable for the ways in which its policies and actions in the Middle East have actually created a breeding ground for groups like ISIS. That's Yasmin Mole. She's a professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan. It's obvious that the media landscape in the Middle East is vast, and that means that for an outsider, it's really hard to understand. The U.S. has tried to harness the power of the media there in order to promote its own interests. But there are things U.S. policymakers just don't get about how religious and political issues align in the Middle East. That's according to Nathan Brown. He's a professor of political science at George Washington University. What the United States is concerned about is often immediate security goals. And it might be having to do with, say, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It might have to do with Syria. It might have to do with Yemen. So what we will sometimes do is come in and say, okay, this person is with us on... Palestinian issue. This government is with us on Yemen and therefore sort of back them across the board. And what we miss in the process is that there's a much, much deeper dialogue going on, that the divisions are not really over short-term policy issues, but over long-term concerns about the place of religion in public life, about who has authority to interpret Islam, and that sort of thing. And so we tend to be very short-term and very clumsy in the way that we intervene in these things. And a good example of that might be Saudi Arabia, officially an ally, despite its harsh treatment of dissidents and the lack of free speech there. I think the American policy reaction has been very, very short-term in focus. When Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia talks this way, when Abdel Fattah Sisi, the president of Egypt, talks this way, American policymakers tend to come in and applaud them, saying that's exactly the right message. We've got leaders who are willing to take on the tough religious issues. And so what they essentially do is align themselves with regimes that are putting out what sounds to an international audience like a moderate message, but to a domestic audience can often sound like a controlling and micromanaging message. Right. And so then does that engender suspicion of the United States on the part of the of the population, of the populace? To be honest, I think on religious grounds, the United States really isn't an actor that people would listen to. Secretary of State Kerry, during the Obama administration, very famously referred to the adherents of the Islamic State as apostates. And so you had this very odd phenomenon of a Roman Catholic American Secretary of State denouncing some Muslims for having for not being true to their religion. This was, I think, water off the duck's back in the Arab world. So I don't think that th- what this does is engender resentment against 
the United States about the religious message, I think they most people simply tune it out as being political and not religious in nature and really irrelevant to any kind of uh, religious discourse within their society. Well, but how important is it when we're talking about the need to control terrorism or um, try to counter violent extremism? How important is it for the United States to understand where these religious messages are coming from and, and to try to effectively counter them? Fundamentally, what we're witnessing in the Muslim world is a long-term historical process that really has to do with the democratization of religion, the end of the monopoly of religious scholars, and even perhaps over the long term of states, over controlling how people think about religion. And that's a process which short-term policy makers far away are not going to be able to deeply affect. And I guess when people see the United States officially supporting authoritarian regimes like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, uh, which are then, as you say, instituting their own will over these religious leaders and cracking down on them, then they might look at the two and lump the two together and say, oh, well, the United States is trying to suppress independent religious thought. I think that's true. I think what is happening in, at least in the Arab world, is the United States is seen as sort of hostile to Islam in general and hostile to open religious discourse because of its support for authoritarian regimes. To some extent, those might be caricatures, but there is some solid basis for for both perceptions. Uh, So it's not imaginary on the part of Arab publics to see the United States as essentially an unfriendly player in the religious terrain. Well, as you say, since the United States doesn't have much sway here and uh, or much power, perhaps ought not to, what should the U.S. be doing? I think one thing that the United States should be doing is taking a little bit more of a long-term view. Associating itself too much with current authoritarian rulers might help it realize short-term policy goals. Um, But over the long term, what we saw in 2011 is that what it does is essentially tie the United States, tether it too closely to those rulers. So any attempt by the United States to kind of come in and say, yes, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, Abdel Fattah, Sisi in Egypt. These are the people that the Muslim world needs to listen to. I think that would have very little positive effect and over the long term might have the negative effect of essentially discrediting the United States as an actor that is friendly to the societies in question. But would that mean reducing aid? Would that mean distancing itself officially from those leaders? I think the decisions on how closely to align are with those leaders or how much aid to give that's not going to be made primarily on the on the basis of religion i've argued since 2011 that what the united states should do would be to embrace Arab societies and not necessarily particular Arab regimes to approach the Arab world in a, in a way similar to the way we would approach other regions. You know, our, our relationship with Germany or China isn't necessarily tethered to one specific ruler and saying this person is good and this person is bad or 
um, this is a sort of editorial that should be appearing in People's Daily in China or, or that sort of thing. Instead, it takes a more long-term approach, looking at uh, common interests within the societies and reaching out to a whole host of political and social actors. And that would be a healthier approach for the Arab world, to treat these societies as if they're not embodied by a single leader, but are instead broad and complex societies which need to engage the United States across the board. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that would be a, a radical shift. Um, it would be a very, very radical shift. It's 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 complicated. It's a part of the world that's sometimes difficult to understand, and it's a part of the world that uh, where you've had ideas come up that people in the United States understandably find abhorrent. So it's not, it wouldn't be an easy task to do it in the Arab world, but long term, I think it would be a far healthier one. Well, that's when we get into dangerous territory because. And I'll give you a concrete example of this. One of the main messages that really resonates sometimes with Western policymakers is the idea that Islam has to be updated in order to deal with the modern world. And so when you have somebody like the president of Egypt or the king of Saudi Arabia calling for religious reform and modernizing religious discourse, this sounds very good to American ears. But at the same time, you have Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who gives the exact same message. He says the exact same thing about modernizing Islam, but he also backs Hamas, and he's backed suicide bombing. So you've got two very radically different political orientations. If we go in and say, this is a good figure, we may find them associated with political decisions or political positions, suicide bombing for Hamas, murder of a large number of opposition members in Egypt that we don't want to be associated with. So so finding particular good guys and particular bad guys is something that a secular government like the United States is never going to be good at and is probably going to make some embarrassing mistakes. So the question is, how much can the media do to change these countries and make them more democratic? How much accountability can these new voices hold over autocratic leaders? As we've seen lately in Saudi Arabia, the government does have the power to shut down independent voices. But in Afghanistan, probably because the power isn't as centralized, there is room for a flowering of independent thought. And perhaps that independent thought will go further than guns and ammunition in creating a new, more liberal society. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Eric Krupke, with additional production help from Flan Williams. Nolan Schneider provided our theme music and assisted with sound design. Audio engineering support was provided by Phil Richards at KCRW and Mario Saavedra. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the Public Radio International app, or by visiting our website, PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations, the Henry Luce Foundation, and listeners like you.